chapter one of beyond these voices this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. beyond these voices by mary elizabeth braddon chapter one lady felicia disbrow was supposed to condescend when she married captain cunningham of the first life since although his people lived on their own land and were handsomely recorded in burke there was no record of them before the conquest nor even on the muster roll of those who fought and died for the angevin kings captain cunningham was handsome and fashionable but not rich and when he had the bad luck to get himself killed in an egyptian campaign he left his widow with an only daughter seven years old her pension and a settlement that brought her about six hundred a year half of which came from the disbrows while the other half was the rental of three or four small farms in somersetshire it will be seen therefore that for a person who considered herself essentially grande dame and to whom all degrading economies must be impossible lady felicia's position was not enviable as the seven-year-old orphan grew in grace and beauty to sweet seventeen lady felicia began to consider her daughter her chief asset so lovely a creature must command the admiration of the richest bachelors in the marriage market she would have her choice of opulent lovers there would be no cruel necessity for forcing a marriage with vulgar wealth or drivelling age she would have her adorers among the best the fortunate the well-bred the young and handsome nor was lady felicia mistaken in her forecast when cara came out under the auspices of her aunt lady oakhampton she made a success that realized her mother's fondest dreams youth rank and wealth were at her feet there was no question of riches raked out of the gutter she had but to say the sweet little monosyllable yes and one of the best-born and best-looking men in london and town and country houses yacht and opera box would be hers and her mother would cease to be poor lady felicia unhappily before lord walford had time to offer her all these advantages cara had fallen in love with somebody else and that somebody was no other than lancelot davis the poet just then the petted darling of dowagers and of young married women whose daughters were in the nursery and who had therefore no fear of his fascinating personality unfortunately for lady felicia her head was too high in the air for her to take note of the literary stars who shone at luncheon parties and even when her daughter praised the young poet and tried to interest her mother in his latest book lady felicia took no alarm it was only in the beginning of their acquaintance that cara talked of the poet to her unresponsive mother by the time she had known him twenty days of that heavenly june he was far too sacred to be talked about to an unsympathetic listener it was only to her dearest and only bosom friend who was also in love with the adorable lancelot that cara liked to talk of him and to her she discoursed romantic nonsense that would have covered reams of foolscap 
had it been written lancelot she said in low thrilling tones even his name is a poem everything about him was a poem for cara his boots his tie his cane and especially his hair which he took a poet's privilege of wearing longer than fashion justified though educated at the stationer's school and unacquainted with either varsity nobody ever said of mr davis that he was not a gentleman that scathing irrevocable sentence with the cruel emphasis upon the negative had not been pronounced upon the man who wrote the new ariadne a work of genius which scared the lowly-minded country vicar his father and set his pious mother praying with trembling and tears that the eyes of her beloved son might be opened and that he might repent of using the talents god had given him in the service of satan lancelot davis had made up for the lack of varsity training by strenuous self-culture he was passionate exalted transcendental more swinburne than swinburne steeped in dante and victor hugo stuffed almost to choking with musset baudelaire and verlaine he was young handsome or rather beautiful too beautiful for a man paris leander the sun-god anything you like and at the time of his wooing his pockets were full of the proceeds of a book that had made a sensation and he was the rage were not these things enough to fire the imagination and win the heart of a girl of eighteen half educated undisciplined the daughter of a shallow-brained mother who had never taken the trouble to understand her or taken account of the romantic yearnings in the mind of eighteen if lady felicia had cultivated her daughter's mind half as strenuously as she had cultivated her person the girl would have not been so ready to fall in love with her poet but the girl's home life had been an arid waste and the mother's conversation had been one long repining against the fate that had made her poor lady felicia and had deprived her of all the things that are needed to make life worth living lancelot davis opened the gates of an enchanted land in which money counted for nothing where there was no animosity against the ultra-rich no perpetual talk of debts and difficulties no moaning over the hardship of doing without things that luckier people could enjoy in abundance he led her into that lovely world where the imagination rules supreme he introduced her to other poets the gods of that enchanted land browning tennyson shelley byron she bowed down before these mighty spirits but thought lancelot davis greater than the greatest of them there was nothing mean or underhand about her poet's conduct he lost no time in offering himself to lady felicia he was not a pauper he was not ill-born and he was thought to have a brilliant future before him his suit was supported by some of poor felicia's oldest and best friends but lady felicia received his addresses with coldness and scarcely concealed contempt and she told her daughter that while she had committed an unpardonable sin when she refused lord walford were she to insist upon marrying mr davis it would be a heart-broken mother's duty to cast her off for ever 
i never could forgive you cara she said and she never did cara walked out of the weymouth street lodgings early one morning before lady felicia had rung for her meagre breakfast of chocolate and toast she carried her dressing-bag to the corner of the street where davis was waiting in a hansom her trunk with all that was most needful of her wardrobe had been dispatched to the station overnight labelled for the continental express there was plenty of time to be married before the registrar and to be at victoria ready for the train that was to carry them on the first stage of that wonderful journey which begins in the smoke and grime of south london and ends under the italian sky they went from the registrar's office straight to the lake of como and lived between bellagio and venice for four years years of ineffable bliss at the end of which sweet summer-time of love and life for it seemed never winter the girl-wife died leaving her young husband heartbroken with an only child a daughter three years old an incarnation of romantic love and romantic beauty when he carried off lady felicia's daughter the poet was at the top of his vogue and his vogue lasted for just those four years of supreme happiness nothing that he wrote after his wife's death had the old passion or the old music his genius died with his wife heartbroken and disappointed he became a consumptive and died of an open-air cure leaving piteous letters to lady felicia and his wife's other relations imploring them to take care of his daughter she would have the copyright of his five volumes of verse and two successful tragedies for her portion so she was not altogether without means lady felicia's heart was not all stone there was a vulnerable spot upon which the serpent's tooth had fastened obstinate proud and selfish she had never faltered in her unforgiving attitude towards the runaway daughter but when there came the sudden news of cara's death a blow for which the spartan mother was utterly unprepared an agony of remorse disturbed the self-satisfied calm of a mind which thought itself justified in resenting injury perhaps she had pictured to herself a day upon which cara would have come back to her and sued for pardon and she would have softened and taken the prodigal daughter to her heart one of the girl's worst crimes had been that she had not knelt and wept and entreated to be forgiven before she took that desperate immodest and even vulgar step of a marriage before the registrar she had shown herself heartless as a daughter and how could she expect softness in her mother but she was dead she had passed beyond the possibility of pardon or love that vague dream of reconciliation could never be realized if there had been anything wrong in lady felicia's behaviour as a parent that wrong could never be righted never more would she see the lovely face that was to have brought prosperity and happiness for them both never more would she hear the sweet voice which the fashionable italian master had trained to such perfection the french ballads and jensen's setting of heine 
came out of the caverns of memory as lady felicia sat poor and lonely in a lodging-house drawing-room on the borderland of west end london the last possible street before w became n w ninon que fait tu de la vie memory brought back every tone of the fresh young voice lady felicia could hardly believe that there was no one singing that the room was empty of human life except her own fatigued existence that last year of remorseful memories softened her and she accepted the charge that lancelot davis left her he lived just long enough in his bleak hospital on a gloucestershire hilltop to read his mother-in-law's letter send the little girl to me i will be kinder to her than i was to her mother society and especially carr's other relations said that poor felicia had been quite admirable in taking the sole charge of the orphan there was no attempt to foist the little girl upon aunts and cousins and considering poor felicia's state of genteel pauperism always in lodgings her behaviour was worthy of all praise the grandchild brought back the memory of the daughter's childhood and lady felicia almost felt as if she was again a young widow full of care for her only child so far as her narrow means permitted she made the little girl happy and she found her own dreary existence brightened by that young life that calm and monotonous existence with granny was not the kind of life that childhood yearns for and there were long stretches of time in which little veronica had only her picture-books and fancy needlework to amuse her after the cheap morning governess had departed and the day's tasks were done at least granny did not torture the orphan with over-education a little french a little easy music a little english history occupied the morning hours and then vera was free to read what books she liked to choose out of granny's blameless and meagre library lady felicia's nomadic life had not allowed the accumulation of literature but the few books she carried about with her were of the best scott thackeray dickens byron her trunks had room only for the immortals and as soon as vera could read them and long before she could understand them those dear books were familiar to her the pictures helped her to understand and she was never tired of looking at them sometimes granny would read shakespeare to her the ghostly scenes in hamlet which thrilled her or passages and scenes from the tempest or midsummer night's dream which vera thought divine she had no playfellows and hardly knew how to play but in her lonely life imagination filled the space that the frolics and gambols of exuberant spirits occupy in the life of the normal child those few great novels which she read over and over again peopled her world a world of beautiful images that she had all to herself and of which her fancy never wearied amy robsart and leicester the scottish knight the generous saracen the heroic dog paul dombey and his devoted sister david copperfield and his child wife these were the companions of the long silent afternoons when granny was taking her siesta 
in seclusion upstairs and when vera had the drawing-room to herself no visitors intruded on those long afternoons for lady felicia's card gave the world to know that the first and fifteenth of may june and july were the only days on which she was accessible to the friends and acquaintances who had not utterly forgotten poor felicia's existence it was a life of monotony against which an older girl would have revolted but childhood is submissive and accepts its environment as something inevitable so vera made no protest against fate but there was one golden season in her young life one heavenly summer holiday in the west country when her aunt lady ockhampton happening to call upon lady felicia was moved to compassion at sight of the little girl pale and languid as she sat in the corner of the unlovely drawing-room with an open book on her lap this hot weather makes london odious said lady ockhampton we are all leaving much earlier than usual i suppose you and the little girl are soon going into the country no i shan't move till the end of october when we go to brighton as usual i have had invitations to nice places the helstons the harone moors but i can't take that child and i can't leave her poor little girl does she never see gardens and meadows brighton is only london with a little less smoke and a strip of grey water that one takes on trust for the sea wouldn't you like a country holiday veronica what a name she is always called vera her father was a poet lancelot davis yes i remember him and he gave her that absurd name because the italian hills were purple and white with the flower when she was born rather a nice idea well vera if granny likes you shall come to disbrow with your cousins and you shall have a real country holiday and come back to granny in september with rosy cheeks and bright eyes oh never to be forgotten golden days in which the child of eleven found herself among a flock of young cousins in a rural paradise where she first knew the rapture of loving birds and beasts she adored them all from the gold and silver pheasants in the aviary to the great slow wagon horses on the home farm and the shooting dogs among the children of the house and more masterful in his behaviour than any of them there was an eton boy of sixteen who was not a disbrow although he claimed cousinship in a minor degree he was a disbrow on the distaff side he told vera a distinction which he had to explain to her he was claude rutherford and he belonged to the yorkshire rutherfords who had been roman catholic from the beginning of history with which they claimed to be coeval he was in the upper sixth at eton and was going to oxford in a year or two and from oxford into the army he was a clever boy old for his years quoted omar khayyam in season and out of season and was already tired of many things that boys are fond of but superior as this young person might be he behaved with something more than cousinly kindness to the little girl from london whose pitiful story lady okehampton had expounded to him he was familiar with the poetry of lancelot davis whose lyrics had a flavour of omar 
and he was pleased to patronize the departed poet's daughter he took vera about the home farm and the stables and introduced her to the assemblage of living creatures that made disbrow park so enchanting he taught her to ride the barb that had been his favourite mount for years earlier he seemed ages older than vera and he condescended to her and protected her and would not allow his cousins to tease her although their vastly superior education tempted them to make fun of the little girl who had only two hours a day from a miss walker and to whom the whole world of science was dark what a change was that large life at disbrow the picnics and excursions the little dances after dinner the run with the otter hounds on dewy mornings the rustic races and sports the thrilling jaunts with cousin claude in his dinghy over those blue-green west country waves a life so full of variety and delight that the pleasures of the day ran over into the dreams of night and sleep was a round of adventure and excitement what a change from the slow walk in regent's park or along the sea front at brighton beside granny's bath chair or the afternoon drive between hove and kemptown in a hired landau she thought of poor granny who was not invited to disbrow and was sorry to think of her lingering in the dull london lodging when all her friends had gone off to their cures in germany and austria and while it was still too early to migrate to the brighter rooms on the marine parade these happy days at disbrow were the first and last of their kind for though lady okehampton promised to invite her the following year there were hindrances to the keeping of that promise and she saw disbrow park no more life in london and brighton continued with what the average girl would have called a ghastly monotony till vera was sixteen when lady felicia after a bronchial attack of unusual severity was told that brighton was no longer good enough for her winters and if she wished to see any more december she must migrate to sunnier regions in the autumn can or mentone were suggested granny smiled a bitter smile at the mention of cannes she had stayed there with her husband at the beginning of their wedded life when she was young and beautiful and when captain cunningham was handsome and reckless they had been among the gayest and the best received and had tasted all that cannes could give of pleasure but they had spent a year's income in five weeks and had felt themselves paupers among the millionaire shipbuilders and exotic hebrews lady felicia decided on san marco a picturesque little spot on the italian riviera which had been only a fishing village till within the last ten years when an english doctor had discovered it and two or three hotels had been built to accommodate the patients he sent there the sea-front was sheltered from every pernicious wind and the sea was unpolluted by the drainage of a town peasant proprietors grew their carnations all along the shore close to the sandy beach and the olive woods that clothed the sheltering hill were carpeted with violets and narcissus lady felicia described san marco as a paradise but her friends told her that there was absolutely no society and that she would be bored to death you will meet nobody but invalids dreadful people in bath chairs 
one of her rich friends told her a purse-proud matron who owned a villa at cannes and considered no other place possible from spezia to marseilles i shall be in a bath-chair myself replied lady felicia i want quiet and economy and not society at vera's age it is best that there should be no talk of dances and high-jinks mrs montague watson smiled and shrugged her shoulders girls have their own opinions about life nowadays she said i don't think theodore or margaret would put up with san marco although they are still in the schoolroom they want fine clothes and smart carriages to look at when they trudge with their governess vera is more unsophisticated than your girl she will be quite happy reading scott or dickens in a garden by the sea i mean to keep her as fresh as i can till i hand her over to one of her aunts to be brought out she is a sweet dreamy child said mrs watson who became deferential at the mere mention of countesses and i dare say she is going to be pretty i have no doubt about that said lady felicia they went to san marco early in november and found the hotel and the sea-front the abode of desolation so far as people went the habitual invalids had not yet arrived and the weather was at its worst the four cosmopolitan shops that spread their trivial wares to tempt the english visitor and which gave a touch of colour and gaiety to the poor little street were not to open till december there were only the shabby little butcher baker and grocer who supplied the wants of the natives vera delighted in the scenery but she found a sense of dullness creeping over her in the midst of all that loveliness of mountain and shore everything seemed deadly still a calm that weighed upon the spirits her grandmother had caught cold on the journey and the english doctor had to be summoned in the morning after their arrival he was their first acquaintance in san marco and was the most popular inhabitant in that quiet settlement old ladies talked of him as chatty and so obliging but objected to him on the ground of two frequent visits which made it perilous to call him in for any small ailment whereby he was sometimes called in too late for an illness which was graver than the patient suspected dr wilmot was essentially a snob but the amiable kind of snob fussy obliging benevolent and with a childlike worship of rank for its own sake he was delighted to find a lady felicia at the hotel des anglais where even a courtesy title was rare and where for the most part a city knight's widow took the pa of all the other inmates dr wilmot told lady felicia that she had chosen the very best spot on the riviera for her bronchial trouble and that the longer she stayed at san marco the better she would like the place the bronchial trouble was mitigated but not conquered and from this time lady felicia claimed all the indulgences of a confirmed invalid while vera's position became that of an assistant nurse subordinate always to granny's devoted maid a sturdy north country woman of eight-and-forty who had been in lady felicia's service from her eighteenth year and who could talk to vera of her mother as she remembered her in those long-ago days before the runaway marriage which was supposed to have broken granny's heart vera had no idea of shirking the duties imposed upon her she walked to the market to buy flowers for lady felicia's sitting-room 
and she cut and snipped them and petted them to keep them alive for a week she dusted the books and photographs and the priceless morsels of chelsea and dresden china which granny carried about with her and which gave a cachet to the shabby second-floor salon she went on all granny's errands she walked beside her bath-chair and read her to sleep in the drowsy windless afternoons when the casements were wide open and the sea looked like a stagnant pond it was a dismal life for a girl on the edge of womanhood a girl who had little to look back upon and nothing to look forward to it seemed to vera sometimes as if she had never lived and as if she were never going to live granny talked of the same things day after day indeed her conversation suggested a talking machine for one always knew what was coming the talk was for the most part a long lament over all the things that had gone amiss in granny's life the follies and mistakes of other people father uncles and aunts husband daughter the wrong-headedness and self-will of others that had meant shipwreck for granny vera listened meekly and could not say much in excuse for the sins of these dead people of whose lives and characters she knew only what granny had told her for her mother she did plead at the risk of offending granny she knew the history of the girl's love for her poet-lover for she had it all in her father's exquisite verse a story-poem in which every phase of that romantic love lived in colour and light vera could feel the young hearts beating as she hung over pages that were to her as sacred as holy writ granny's bronchitis and granny's memories of past wrongs did not make for a cheerfulness and even the loveliness of that italian shore in the celestial light of an italian spring was not enough for the joy of life there is a profound melancholy that comes down upon the soul in the monotony of a beautiful scene where there is nothing besides that scenic beauty a monotony that weighs heavier than ugliness a dull street in bloomsbury would have been hardly more oppressive than the afternoon stillness of san marco when granny had fallen asleep in her nest of silken cushions and vera had her one little walk alone up and down up and down the poor scrap of promenade with its scanty row of palms tall and straggling crowned with a spare tuft of leaves and a bunch of dates that never came to maturity companionless and hopeless vera paced the promenade and looked over the tideless sea the only changes in the days were the alternations of granny's health the days when she was better and the days when she was worse and when dr wilmot came twice dreary days on which vera had to go down to the table d'hote alone and to run the gauntlet of all the other visitors who surrounded her in the hall obtrusively sympathetic and wanting to know the fullest particulars of lady felicia's bronchial trouble and what dr wilmot thought of it they told her it must be very dull for her to be always with an invalid and they tried to lure her into the public drawing-room where she might join in a round game or even make a fourth at bridge or if there were a conjurer that evening the elderly widows and spinsters almost insisted upon her stopping to see the performance no thank you i mustn't stay granny wants me she would answer quietly and after she had run upstairs there would be a chorus of disapproval of lady felicia's want of consideration in depriving the sweet child of every little pleasure within her reach vera had no yearning for the gaieties of the hotel drawing-room or the conjurer's entertainment but she had a feeling of hopeless loneliness 
which even her favourite books could not overcome if she had been free to roam about the olive woods to climb the hills and get nearer the blue sky she might have been almost happy but granny was exacting and vera had never more than an hour's freedom at a time the hills and the rustic shrines that shone dazzling white against the soft blue heaven were impossible for her exploration or adventure was out of the question she might sit in the garden where the pepper trees and palms were dust-laden and shabby or she might pace the promenade where granny and martha lidcott granny's maid could see her from the salon windows on the second floor on the promenade she was safe and needed no chaperone the hardiest and most audacious of prowling cads would not have dared to follow or address her under the glare of all those hotel windows and within sound of shrill female voices and flying tennis-balls on the promenade she had all the hotel for her chaperone granny asked her the same questions every evening when she came in to dress for the seven o'clock dinner had she enjoyed her walk and was it not a delicious evening and then granny would tell her what a privilege it was to be young and able to walk instead of being a helpless invalid in a bath chair vera wondered sometimes whether the privilege of youth with the long blank vista of years lying in front of it were an unmixed blessing End of chapter 1